Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, it's a joy to be with all of you uh, this evening. Uh, for those of you who are um, maybe a bit new, my name is Chris, uh, ministry associate here, and um, joyful to, to serve in Praxis. Um, if you're fresh to Praxis, new, uh, we have been covering the letter of Romans, uh, written by the Apostle Paul. And for the past several weeks, we have hiked, we have uh, ascended a great peak in this letter of Romans. Romans chapter 8, arguably the most important, the most celebrated, the most well-regarded chapter in the entire Bible. From the freeing declaration of no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus in chapter 8, verse 1, to the comforting book-ended reality of no separation from the love of God at the end of chapter 8. It is no exaggeration that Romans 8 rightly claims the title of perhaps greatest Bible chapter of all time. Doctrinal truths are portrayed with such beauty, majestic views that one could say that they are situated at the top of Scripture's Grand Canyon. Well, if Romans 8 is the Grand Canyon, chapters 9 through 11 are the Zion Narrows. For while the sights to behold in Romans chapter 9 through 11 are breathtaking, they are equally dangerous. Flash floods and fast-moving rivers can quickly flood the Narrows and put people's lives at risk, which is why some hike and tread with trepidation or avoid this hike altogether. And in a similar way, I think that's why many Christians, even preachers, avoid these chapters. Because while these truths are beautiful, many fear the torrential flood of questions that one is confronted with. Is God fair to save some, but not others? How should we think through God's, God, God being love when he deliberately chooses to save some, but then condemn and punish others. If God is the one who chooses and acts to save, do our choices, do our decisions even matter in life? Is our life based in some sort of matrix construct governed by God? Or are we a bunch of robots functioning as automatons? Or what about this? Is there? And what about free will? If these are the sorts of questions you come with today, or even mildly interested in hearing how God's Word addresses such questions, uh, you're in the right place. To be sure, there are some hard sayings, difficult truths to be found in these chapters, Romans 9 through 11. Not necessarily because they are hard to conceptualize or understand intellectually, but because they're hard to accept in our hearts. It's hard for us to find peace with such things. Yet these truths, these doctrines, such as unconditional election, predestination, and even reprobation, which we might look at in future weeks, are foundational for us to appreciate the gospel story. They help us appreciate God's tapestry of redemption set in motion even at this very moment. So let us enter the Narrows and begin at the trailhead. If you have your Bibles, I please encourage you to please turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Uh, I will read Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll ask the Lord for his blessing. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises 
To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather, Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told. The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the authoritative and trustworthy word of God. Let's pray. Father, Help us, perhaps in our rebellious, our stubborn, or ignorant hearts, to swallow the truths that may be difficult for us to reconcile. I pray that your word would be the source of our enlightenment, Lord. For your word is the fount of wisdom for which we still lack much of pray that your spirit would bless this time, and I pray that this would not become just a, a cold doctrine that merely leaves us with more head knowledge, things we know, another truth to put in our pocket, Lord, but would feel our worship, that would ignite our affections as we understand the depth of your love, the depth of your kindness, the depth of your grace, set before undeserving people such as ourselves. Help us now, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As said earlier, today we are embarking on a passage dealing with a controversial doctrine. God's election and choice to save individuals while not saving others. I think many times we think we know better and what is good for ourselves. But concerning the salvation of sinners through Jesus, God says otherwise. If any of you like sushi, this is not in all-you-can-eat or choose, you know, from like sushi boats kind of a sermon or message. Because this message is going to be served omakase style. A chef's choice. And I am not referring to myself here. I'm referring to God who is wise and knows the best cut of doctrine to whet our appetites on the glorious truths that magnify and worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's something about omakase that's appealing, right? The idea that you put, you just sit before a table and you trust that the chef knows best, the best fresh cut of the day, and how to prepare that so it is most appetizing. And I feel like that is how we need to approach this passage today. The key idea that we will be looking at from our verses this evening is this, that God's choice to save demonstrates his sovereign grace towards sinners. The first point that we'll be looking at is this, God's choice to save should ultimately feel our concern for the lost, our burden for the lost, in verses 1 through 5. Take a look at verses 1 through 2. Paul gets to the heart of the matter by first passionately bearing his heart. He appeals to the sincerity, the truthfulness for what he's about to say. You know, how when we have like a heart-to-heart, -heart, a raw and honest conversation, we sometimes speak like this, don't we? It's not that everything we say is a lie or falsehood, but at times we appeal in certain situations, say, look here, I'm absolutely telling you the truth right now. 
Why does Paul come across as defensive in order for his statement to be trusted? Because he wants to settle the matter when his love and care for Israel is called into question. You see, a potential charge or even a curious assumption might be made about Paul. And it goes something like this. Well, Paul, do you really care about your own people, your own peoples? You're so focused on reaching the Gentiles, and that's the driving motivation for your missionary journeys. Have you abandoned all thought, abandoned all concern for your fellow Israelites, the folks you once called your fellow Hebrew brothers and sisters? And so Paul appeals to his own union with Christ, states he is not lying, and even appeals to his conscience, which is ruled by the Holy Spirit. And he has a a clear conscience and conviction that what he says is pure truth. No exaggeration. No guile or deception. No painting himself in a self-righteous light. What is it that grips and compels the Apostle Paul to, to be frank and honest with us in what he's about to say. Where does this great sorrow, this constant anguish that's tearing up his heart come from? Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This grief This sadness in his heart is in sync with the burden he has for those who remain lost and apart from Christ. In particular, his own ethnic people, Israel. One cannot arrive at the conclusion that Paul doesn't care about those who were still lost and steeped in Judaism. Despite being a Christian, becoming an apostle of Jesus Christ, fulfilling his calling as a missionary to reach the Gentiles. He did not forget about Israel. He did not preclude or abandon his love for Israel. He still very much cares for Israel, his ethnic people. The reality was that even the Christians in Rome knew a great majority of Jewish people at that time had not yet responded in faith in the gospel message. They had not embraced Jesus as their Messiah, They rejected their king. And that reality cut Paul to the heart as it did Christ when he himself was rejected by Israel and thus ended his public teaching ministry directed towards Israel where he says, Jesus speaks in Matthew 23, verse 37 to 39, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her, her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Paul knows the implication of the state of his fellow Jews, his own kindred, If they are apart from Christ, they have no salvation, no eternal life. The religion is a dead religion. But head knowledge of these realities isn't what demonstrates love. Acknowledging a person or a group of people being lost doesn't demonstrate a true burden for them. It's lip service to call that genuine care and compassion. Love for the lost, which burdens Paul deeply, which burdens him consistently. Have you ever received Sad news about someone you love and care about. Perhaps an emergency call concerning someone you know who's just been admitted to the ER and currently under critical condition. You forget about your eating, your long-term goals. All those things can just wait, right, in that moment because your priorities have shifted. You can't seem to get your mind off the person you're concerned for. Well, that is Paul when it comes to the critical condition of fellow Jews whose outcome seems to be spiritually terminal and fatal the longer they reject the only treatment that can save them. And so this burden for the loss is so deep. His love for the loss is so genuine. He goes so far as to say he wishes he could be a sacrifice and give up his salvation if it means saving his fellow people. 
even to be accursed for their sake. To be accursed, this word for accursed here comes from the Greek word anathema. For those of you who are perhaps study a little church history, um, you may have heard that word thrown around before. For Paul to pray that for himself, for the sake of others, he would wish that upon himself means his love is so deep, so intense, that he would willingly excommunicate, cut himself off from the love of God, and stand in place of his fellow lost Jews who are bound for eternal judgment. Now, this statement doesn't mean he actually believes he can do that. This is a, there's a hypothetical nuance here. For example, to illustrate like what, what he means, where it's not actually possible, but hypothetically, his heart is there. He's willing. Use this illustration. Growing up, one of the most touching and emotional scenes I've watched came from one of cinematography's greatest historical drama film. And surprisingly, for some of you in Praxis who know me, I'm not talking about a Korean drama. I'm talking about a wartime drama directed by Steven Spielberg, known as Schindler's List. The film is situated in the midst of World War II and the Holocaust. And the film's protagonist is a German industrialist, factory owner, who saved more than a thousand Polish Jewish refugees by employing them in his factory. And the guys, the guys he used to protect and keep them alive. He employed and tried to rescue more Jews by plotting to use his manufacturing company to hire more Jewish workers during wartime Germany, thus extending their lives and sparing them from the concentration camps. He knew that if his ploy were to be found out, his life could be in danger as well. At the end of the movie, Germany loses the war, and manufacturing, therefore, comes to a halt. And there's a touching scene where all the Jewish employees rescued by Schindler, in corporate solidarity, huddle around him to express their gratitude and thankfulness in saving them, presenting Schindler with a gold ring. It is at this moment that Schindler is cut to the heart and ashamed at the same time, wishing he could do more, and he breaks down in tears and, and weeps. If only I made one more sacrifice, he, he could have saved one more life. He could have hired more workers if he had more money. He could have sold his car to hire more. Of course, this is after the fact. The Holocaust already took place, hypothetical. Why do I share with you this touching scene from a movie you've likely never seen before? Because I believe despite its limitations and maybe my illustration falling short, it captures the pathos Paul has, an actual Jew has for those he has a burden to save. He wishes he could stand in place for the salvation of Israel, even though he knows only Christ can do that. Only Christ can stand in the place of sinners and atone for sins. That and the fact that it's not possible for Paul to renounce his salvation all of a sudden, which would then separate himself from the love of God. Yet despite this hypothetical impossibility, it shows all the more the deep burden Paul has for those who are still separated from Christ. But the grievous wounds in his heart doesn't stop there. The dagger pierces even deeper, knowing what Paul knows about Israel, verse 4 to 5. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from the race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Notice Paul doesn't use the term Jew like he has previously. Israel was a special name that signified identity, used to highlight special religious position for members of Jewish people. It was the preferred designation or group label. And Israel was God's elect people. They were recipients of special affection, special love. In contrast to all the other nations and people groups in the history of mankind, they received promises only applicable to them specifically. So what were the special privileges that set them apart? 
Well, this list is actually kind of lengthy, and we'll kind of walk through them quickly. For one, adoption in the Old Testament, Israel as a nation was viewed as God's son, and it conveyed a special status that they were set aside by God for blessing and service and protection. In Exodus 4.22, God calls Moses to lead his people out of Egypt against the oppression of Pharaoh. And so God commands Moses to tell Pharaoh that Israel is God's firstborn son. Later, in Hosea 11.1, God declares his love for Israel yet again, the nation of people who he refers to as his son. He says in Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. To Israel also belongs glory. And what was this benefit and privilege? It was God's unique glory that you know, came about and was experienced by God's people by God's presence to the nation of Israel, where God dwelt amongst his people in the midst of them. God's glory was present in the wilderness and appeared in the cloud. It was his glory that appeared at Mount Sinai. It was his glory among the people at the tent of meeting to showcase and to show them that God was with them. He is present with them. And they had that unique blessing and experience. Moreover, they received the covenants Not just one promise, not just one covenant, plural. Promises made for a specific group. The Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, yes, and even the Davidic covenant. And not only that, they were given the law, the Ten Commandments and other principles and standards of what it meant to obey God and live in a unique relationship as a collective son, as a nation, obeys his father. They were also entrusted with temple worship, the ceremonial system involving sacrifices, offerings, cleansings. Worship and repentance was administered by the Levite priests. They were given a front row seat on how to worship a holy God, the one and true God, and how to relate to him. They were also given certain promises, which flowed from the patriarchs in verse 5. Why does the book of Genesis devote so much real estate, so many chapters on the patriarchs, and their historical descent? Because God gave promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which applied to them and their descendants. And these promises are important to understand because it shapes and colors the story of redemption of a particular people. Not only that, from their race would come the promised Messiah, the one who prophesied, was prophesied as the Redeemer, King, the one who would restore and build up God's people. But pay attention to this last privilege and blessing. There's a subtle shift. Although Christ, whose lineage can be traced back to the heritage of Israel, traced back to the descendants of Abraham, which traces back even further as a descendant, the seed of Adam, Jesus is not the Messiah exclusively only to Israel. In fact, Paul says that while Christ comes from Israel, Christ is God over all. And in other words, the Messiah wasn't just a man that came as a promised descendant of Israel. The Messiah is God, deity. The very words Jesus said about himself that had religious leaders up in arms, hysterical and livid even, ready to declare Jesus a blasphemer. And so while Jesus was rejected by his own people, he was more than just the Messiah of Israel. He is God over both Jew and Gentiles, as we covered in Romans 3. 29 to 30. So why, why this tension, this grinding pain and concern over Paul's fellow kinsmen who, is, who are lost? Why is there so much agony for Paul to acknowledge that Israel as a nation is privileged in so many ways to see the, the reality of who Christ is, the promised Messiah who came from the same lineage as them? Because Paul knows that if anyone if there were any group that should have believed in Jesus, if there was a certain group of people who ought to recognize and trust the promised Messiah, ought to identify and see Jesus as Savior and Lord, it should have been Israel as a collective people. They were supposed to be the chosen ones. They were supposed to follow Christ, not reject him. And with great privilege come great expectations, great hope, a promising response. Consider this, in society today, when people are born with privilege, what do we expect? What do we anticipate? 
we expect, anticipate that they have a leg up over others, whether it be success in education, career networking, social mobility. Why? Because of greater access. They're in the know. They're, they're in network with people who matter. The inner circle with insider information. They have the means, so we assume they have the way, the access to excel further in life or achieving greater success than those without. Yet it is with this expectation in mind, Paul understands that God thinks and operates absolutely distinctly from how man thinks and operates. And really what we learn from Israel's privilege is this. These privileges mean nothing unless one is joined in union with Christ. Apart from Christ, these privileges don't ultimately amount to anything in the eternal scheme of things. In the end, it doesn't even matter. It amounts to zero if Jesus is not your salvific hero. It may be wonderful to receive temporal privileges as a group of people, but it pales in comparison to the tragedy of greater proportion than Shakespearean scale for a people who do not have Jesus. For to be without Christ means coming face to face with eternal separation from God and rightly suffering the eternal judgment of the living God. So praxis, what can we glean from this tragic reality that ought grip our hearts? What can we learn from the privilege of Israel as a nation whom Paul views as tragic? How should we react and respond to the brokenness Paul experiences over those who are lost? and currently separated from Christ in their unbelief. Well, for one, the salvation that we have received as a gift of grace demonstrates God's unbreakable, unshakable love for us. But it should never lead us to have an inward bent towards the blessings we have received in Jesus. The gospel should never lead us to be complacent in our evangelism, but should instill compassion for the lost. That the end goal of church is not a holy huddle. It is share in grief Paul's experiences over the people we regard as our kinsmen, our family members, our friends, our, pe our peoples, perhaps of the same ethnicity, fellow SoCal people in our community who are currently apart from Christ and have not heard or accepted the message of the gospel. You see, brothers and sisters, when you see many in this world who to this day Day, remain cut off from Christ, who have not heard rich biblical teaching, have access to some of the privileges of teachings that we have here at this church, and many like it here in the West, here in California, there should be a depth of sadness. Perhaps that is, that is the heart, the impetus for evangelism we have not really understood and come to grips with. That our love for others is measured by the depth of sorrow and sadness the depth of burden we feel for those who are categorized as unbelievers. You see, God's choice in saving us is never meant as an end of itself for us to be cul-de-sacs of grace. The doctrine of election and the blessing of being chosen should not callous our hearts. It ought not flatten our affections and become that we, to the point that we become innocuous or unaware that people are perishing every single day only to rightly incur God's just wrath because they died as unrepentant sinners. Nor should we act like we're the stiff-necked, frozen chosen whose life problems are bigger than the ultimate problem of unbelief that exists rampantly in this world. Paul's burden for Israel is driven by his understanding that religious privilege is not the reason why some are saved while others are not Privilege does not save, because salvation doesn't lie with man, but God. It is God's choice to save. Whoever he chooses. Yet while he hasn't yet advanced the doctrine of election in the first five verses, his concern for Israel teaches us that this doctrine doesn't rob us of zeal for evangelism, but fuels our trust in a sovereign God to save whomever he chooses as we faithfully proclaim and get the message of the gospel across to them because that is the only power, that is the only message that can save them. 
But it is at this juncture where you might be thinking, but wait just a minute. What inevitably follows is an objection to the good news of the gospel that Paul will now lay down the gauntlet and defend against. You see, the looming question, the hands raised high objection begs the question, so if God promised to save through the gospel of Jesus Christ and none of his people can be separated from his love, then what are we to make about Israel? God's supposed chosen people. Is God inconsistent? Can God be trusted to be good on his word? Or did he go back on his word with Israel? Did he revoke the blessings he promised to them? In other words, why can God's promise of salvation through faith in Jesus be trustworthy and embraced? Especially when what he promised Israel from what we can gather seems to have failed. And has God failed? Well, the TLDR is that the answer is no. In fact, God's dealing with Israel doesn't show his word failed at all, but is and always has been true, which is the second point for our message that Paul proves. That God's choice to save demonstrates his faithfulness in verses 6 through 9. Look with me starting in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Here we see that there's no valid objection to the integrity of God's promise to save through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Indeed, no one can ever be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not now, not then, not forever. The sober reality of Israel's unbelief does not nullify God's promise or make them void. But why is that the case? Where's the proof in the pudding? Verse 7, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all Israel are true Israelites. There is an Israel within an Israel. A reality that exists with two concentric circles. The outer circle represents ethnic Israel as a national people. But within this ethnic identity and nation lies true spiritual Israel. So while a broad ethnic Israel exists... There is a narrower group that Paul is trying to help us to conceptualize and understand regarded as spiritual Israel. Consider this analogy. Would you agree that there are many people that live in this country, known as the United States of America? You live within the borders of the U.S. You work among other people in the same country. You eat the same food. You enjoy the same forms of entertainment, like watching the same movies, chillaxing at the same beaches, shouting things like SoCal, Best Cal. But would you say that everyone in America is an American? No, right? While everyone in this country lives together collectively and enjoys similar blessings... There is a defining demarcation line, an identity of what it means to be an American. And from the vantage point of the sovereign country that we live in, those who are truly Americans, those who are identified Americans, are known as U.S. citizens. Only U.S. citizens have the right to vote, to apply for federal employment, to run for elected office, to obtain a U.S. passport, and not be denied re-entry to this country. In other words, a subset exists within the whole. And this is exactly what Paul sets out to demonstrate through Israel, specifically the example of Abraham, his son, and his son Isaac, and how it shapes our fundamental understanding of what it means to be chosen by God. You see, God's word hasn't failed because God never promised, nor did he intend to save all Israel. with the basis of their salvation, merely ethnic commonality. 
So just because one is a physical descendant of Abraham, you can trace your physical DNA back to him. That does not mean you have the same spiritual DNA as Abraham. Belonging to God's people wasn't by physical descent, but God's deliberate choice. Nowhere do we see this more clearly than God's promises to Abraham. Abraham, the patriarch of patriarchs, had two sons, if you recall the historical count in Genesis. Ishmael was conceived through Hagar, Sarah's servant. But Ishmael, though technically a physical descendant of Abraham, was not the legitimate child God had originally promised to Abraham and Sarah. That was Isaac, who was conceived through Sarah. At an extraordinarily old age, when even herself, Sarah, laughed at the idea that she could have children at her, at her age, given being barren for much of her life. Yet this was to show it is God's initiative. It is God the one, it is God who chooses and whom he promises and who he commits to to bless. It's all his doing. Just like how the descendants of Isaac would be regarded as children of Abraham and receive the blessings of God, God's covenant in Genesis 17:21, when it comes to salvation, the children of promise are the spiritual offspring, not necessarily physical offspring of Abraham, spiritual offspring. So this promise was not conditioned on power, abilities, privilege, ethnic heritage of Abraham. It was out of God's choice, out of his good pleasure to save and bless. It was his will, God's will, to make such a promise and fulfill such a promise. Yet the error of Israel was to assume and think all ethnic Israel, without distinction, were recipients of such promise. And so one does not become a child of promise and child of God by physical descent, physical heritage. That was simply never what God meant or was to be understood. What we learn from Abraham and Isaac is that true children of promise, the spiritual seed of Abraham, are those who have the same faith like Abraham. Those who, like Abraham, are counted righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. Those who are the ones who are in union with Christ and truly adopted into the family of God as his spiritual children. So, beloved, what does this, what does this all mean to you? How does this understanding of how God saves and his faithfulness shape your understanding of salvation? Well, I think for one... It guards us from the error and misconception of how one is saved. Maybe there are some of you today who have not considered the claims of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross by dying for sinners in our place, in your place, and that by believing in him, you might be saved. You see, the danger or error is to come through these doors week in, week out, participate in church, and assume that's what makes you a Christian. That's what justifies you hanging out with other Christians, yet you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Or you might wrongly think that your salvation is contingent on you going to church, assimilating the culture of other Christians, being a moral and nice person, yet you still remain apart from Christ. You think that by becoming a church member, that's the official stamp of approval and justifies you before the eyes of God. That's what saves you. But know this, salvation is not contingent on what you do. Salvation is a settled reality in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is but applied to you, appropriate to you, when you repent from your sins and trust in him, his work, his promise of how one is saved. That's how you know who's a child of God. Your answer to the question who do you say Jesus is? So God's word has not failed. God's word is faithful to what he promised. And the idea that God's word has failed is built on a faulty understanding of how God saves, which leads us now to our last point this evening. Paul's building a scaffold, a scaffold support for what he sees as preeminent in the gospel. The salvation belongs to the Lord. That God is sovereign in salvation. Third point, God's choice to save certain individuals is unconditional in verses 10 through 13. Verse 10 reads, 
And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Here we see with great and sharp clarity what the doctrine of election is. What the main theme of these verses concerning God's choice to save a particular people while not saving others. What we learn is that God's choice God, God's choice to save is not based on the conditions of people's response. God's choice to save a particular people is not based on conditions. He doesn't save you because you're naughty or nice, not because you're a hard worker, not because you're pretty, not because you're cool, not because of your ethnicity, not because of your privilege in life. He saves whom he chooses to save. That's the bottom line. He clarifies this truth, not with Isaac and Ishmael now, who had two different mothers, but now Rebekah, the one mother who gave birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau had the same father too, practically conceived at the same time. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they came out at, at pretty much the same time. Neither had a better claim to the divine promise as a birthright than the other based on this reality. And if anything, God's choice to bless and love Jacob rather than Esau clearly illustrates that God blesses and saves out of grace. Given they shared the same mother, the same father with twins, it begs the question, what warrants one being blessed over the other? In that culture, and also in a lot of Asian cultures, the firstborn son inherits the birthright and honor, right? But remember, Jacob was the younger brother, yet he ultimately received God's blessing. Human preferences had nothing to do with God's choice to bless Jacob over Esau. It was solely God's determinative choice to make a promise that Jacob would be preeminent and that he would be the one that receives blessings through Abraham and Isaac. You see, even before they were born, God made this promise to Rebekah and Isaac, that Jacob would be the child of promise and receive the first blessing. So comparing and tra- contrasting these two brothers in a, like a Venn diagram and trying to, trying to rationalize and arrive at some kind of logical reason or purpose for why God chose to love and bless Jacob over Esau is an exercise in futility. Verse 12 reiterates how this goes against what humans would naturally expect, especially culturally at that time. The older will serve the younger. The lack of human reason for why Jacob was differentiated and preferred over Esau highlights that when it comes to salvation, his salvific blessing, he does so on the basis of his good pleasure and purposes. He calls upon and saves those whom he chooses. He predetermined to save whoever he chose to save. And this comes into sharper focus with the support Paul gives in verse 13. Jacob loved. Esau hated. Same God. Two different dispositions and treatment towards two brothers. Paul is quoting the prophet Malachi where Jacob and Esau represent the countries of Israel and Edom, the Edomites. And in Malachi 1... um, and we went through Malachi, so if you want to listen to the previous message, you can uh, look, look for that on our website or on Spotify. But in Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 to 5, it was confirmed that the Edomites were, the outs- were outside the people of God. They were cut off, which all the more confirms that God chooses to save whom he chooses while not saving certain individuals. So I think a question that arises from this as we study the book of Romans and how we're justified by faith, the importance of faith, right? Does this make faith pointless then? No. 
But what the doctrine of election teaches us is that while faith doesn't determine a person's election by God, election determines who will ultimately have faith. So this doctrine is not meant to be cold and heartless, but it ought to stir our affections for the nature of salvation. It is an act of grace apart from ourselves, apart from works, apart from any sort of merit, self-righteous act that you think makes you right with God. It really helps us understand that salvation belongs to the Lord. Your faith in Jesus confirms you are God's chosen elect. And also, when it comes to evangelism, it means, yeah, we're not the one electing. It's God who does that. We're simply entrusted with the stewardship of proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified. Knowing that people's response does not rest on our own cleverness, having all the answers. But if we get the message of the gospel of the cross, whom he calls will be saved. They will have new life. They will be born again by the Spirit. So then, another question that arises from this doctrine. If God elects some, why doesn't God elect all? Why aren't people universally saved? Why doesn't he just save everybody? Now I have to preface that it would be wrong to me to say, like, I know all the answers and uh, know all the wisdom uh, of God and the mind of God, and we can answer this question exhaustively because we can't. But while we might not be able to answer this question fully, that doesn't mean a good reason or purpose doesn't exist in God's plan. You see, the answer to why is because we aren't God. Just as we've learned today, salvation belongs to the Lord. He does whatever he chooses. He saves whomever he chooses. And so the answer to that is because we aren't God. We don't know as much as God does. We are not infinite, wise, good, and faithful, and as just and righteous as God is, though we may think we are. So just because we don't see a good reason that exists for why some are not saved it doesn't necessarily follow that a good reason doesn't exist within God's wisdom and purposes. Let me try to illustrate this with an example. Probably a foolish example, but for example, consider a father and mother with a young male child. Let's say, for the sake of this illustration, his name is Everest. Everest is a six-year-old boy who loves monster trucks. And one day, out of excitement, out of the prospect and dream of being able to drive a car, he asked Daddy and Mommy, I want to try to drive the car. Can Mommy and Daddy let me drive the car today? And Mommy and Daddy tells Everest, no, you may not drive the car to church. Sometimes parents don't give their children the very thing that they want or desire. In the child's mind, they think they know what's best. But in the wisdom of these parents, mommy and daddy, they know why they, it's not good to let a six-year-old child drive a car to church. Right? Perhaps mommy and daddy have very good reasons for why Everest shouldn't be behind the wheel at that age. But the question is, will Everest be able to grasp and understand what those good reasons are at his age? And if he doesn't, is unable to grasp or come to grips with it at his age of why he should not drive a car, does that necessarily follow that his parents are mean, unloving, and not seeking his good? No, right? You'd expect Everest to grow up one day and understand that mommy and daddy was looking out for his safety as well as all of you here at church. And in the same way, it is reasonable that God, who has repeatedly and with a great track record proven his love, his justice and goodness, 
and has very good reasons and purposes for why he doesn't save universally. And it just may be that it's just that we don't understand the infinite wisdom and purposes of God. But what we do learn is this, that salvation is an act of grace that highlights the wisdom of God. It should stir our affections in awe and gratitude that we have received and believed upon the good news of Jesus Christ. That we would recognize that we actually don't deserve anything. As rebels against a holy, perfectly holy and righteous God, the question isn't, why aren't more people saved? Why isn't everyone saved? But it should leave us with this humble and contrite attitude. Why are any of us saved? God's sovereignty and salvation highlights and narrows in just how gracious his character is. And at the same time, how he is mighty to save. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father God, I'm sure that there are still many questions in our mind. Yet, it is within your infinite wisdom that you have condescended and communicated with us in your authoritative revealed word so that we might just get a further glimpse, just increase our depth and understanding in just maybe a, a more comprehensive way of just the height, the depth, the breadth of your love for stubborn sinners such as us. I pray that as we reflect upon you choosing us, Lord, and how it is an, an act apart from ourselves, Lord, that we might marvel, about, marvel over your kindness towards us, that we would marvel at the gospel and how that has the power to save us unworthy rebels. And that would beckon us to worship you all the more and have a humble attitude as we reflect upon the, cro the cross and Savior of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.